Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, a podcast devoted to all things RPGs. I am your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Happy Labor Day weekend when we would have been at PAX in another lifetime. Well, in this lifetime, I would have been at Burning Man. Would you have gone back to Burning Man? You went last year. No, I wouldn't have gone back to Burning Man. I would have gone to PAX. Yeah, I, w- I would have liked to see you at PAX. We could have had a panel. And by going to PAX, I probably would not have gone to PAX, actually. <laughs> you would have like just done the uh, state of on the home front and, and monitored from there yeah i probably would have sent you like you and mike and like matt maybe something like that you know what? yeah i i haven't met matt yet i'd really like to meet him sometime everyone else i've met physically except for most of the uk team but yeah i've never met matt physically i've met everybody else physically oh that's right because he went to e3 but you didn't go so yeah yeah i was actually gonna i was planning on going to tgs this year as well Ah, uh, that would have been a nice trip to Japan, wouldn't it? It would have been a nice trip to Japan. Something that will be a nice trip to Japan, though, is in this podcast, because this week is the console RPG quest for the PSP, which came out in 2005, and is the latest in our long-running series that goes all the way back to the Atari 2600 and whatnot, where we catalog the rpg legacy of every console that we can possibly think of even the cdi even the cdi just kind of staple that to the bottom mumble it even the cdi i think we mentioned it in passing we definitely mentioned it in passing um we we because you have to mention the atrocious zelda games that's just something that has to be done by law i think it had one good game and it was called burn cycle it's supposed to be really good before we get to that though if you're enjoying the show can i suggest that you leave a review over on itunes stitcher or the podcatcher of your choice, we always appreciate it. We enjoy reading your kind comments if you enjoy the show. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. I also stream on Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday at twitch.tv slash catbaileytv. I was recently streaming Super Robot Wars, Nadia. That was pretty fun. I think I happened to, I was looking at my own Twitch channel because I'm kind of doing random streams here and there, a little bit of Final Fantasy, just kind of testing water. So keep an eye on me on on Twitter and you might see me announce a stream. But anyway, I thought I saw you streaming Pokemon uh, Sword and Shield as well. Yeah, I was streaming Pokemon Sword and Shield the other day. I was trying out the new ranked season. It's kind of interesting. Ah. So they have different rules for the different seasons. And this season, they just straight up chopped out 10 of the most popular Pokemon. And so <laughs> ah, the nice. metagame is in complete disarray and people are using totally different uh characters it's actually been a lot more fun lots more that's cool i I really like that idea because you know let's face it everyone chooses the same op pokemon every time and uh, even though game freak does their best to balance things it's everyone has their favorites and it kind of reminds me of the nuzlocke runs which i've always wanted to try myself i never want to see togekiss or freaking cinder ace again period (laughs) and i like cinder ace a lot is he used a lot in the uh, the metagame constantly he's so powerful that he was actually banned by smogon wow that bad huh yeah because he has the ability to change his type depending on the attack that he uses right oh geez that is a little bit op and if he goes into dynamax mode and then uses the air attack uh that will boost his speed which will make him basically impossible (laughs) to go faster than and he has a significant amount of bulk and he hits like a mac truck yeah, he does. He he was an extremely powerful Pokemon. I, I like him a lot, but I can see why he everyone would say, okay, you know what? We can't do the, the metagame with this, this stupid overpowered god rabbit. It's just not happening anymore. Stupid overpowered god rabbit. Uh, that's, that's a good what description is. of it. Yeah. yeah. 
But it's banned now, so I don't have to worry about it. So uh, who's uh, who's in your team then? Uh, I use like High Dragon. I have a Blastoise that can go into Gigantamax mode that has Shell Smash. Cool. I have uh, Volcarana, which is from Black and White. I have a few different characters. So none oh, of them I'm... have been banned. The only one that got banned was a Dragapult, my shiny Dragapult. Oh, I love Dragapult though. Yeah, it's uh, it's a nice design. I actually am a big fan of Dragapult's design. I've seen someone like kind of describe Dragapult with the. Uh... That little kitten, that little kitten meme where he's saying, Father, I crave violence because he launches his children <laughs> from his head. So if you want more tweets like that one, you should follow Nadia at Nadia Oxford. <laughs> About Dragapult sacrificing his children for the greater good. And you've been streaming Final Fantasy XIV, thus beginning your road to being a Final Fantasy XIV influencer. I think I would be a good Final Fantasy XIV influencer, to be honest with you. I think so too. You started a you started a new character even that shows just how dedicated you are to the game. Yeah, I started a new character on the Malboro server, which is I think on the Primal Data Center. And yeah, I'm playing a Viera because I like the Vieras a whole heck of a lot, even though you can't play as the male Viera, and I'm still very salty about that. Even though I know it's just kind of beyond the developers. Nobody works harder than the Final Fantasy XIV developers. I acknowledge that, but I really want to play a male Viera. Twitch.tv slash Actung kitten acton kitten we also have a newsletter that comes out every single wednesday nadia what is the topic of the newsletter this week this week um what was recently in the news was m2 the really excellent sort of emulation port company studio uh they were doing the sega ages line uh sega ages has been a thing for a very very long time but m2 did a particularly good line of ports of old Sega games for the Nintendo Switch. And one of them that they did really, really well was a remaster, well, kind of a a really good tune-up of the original Fantasy Star for the Nintendo Switch. And I really wanted to see them go on and do 2, 3, and 4 for Fantasy Star, but um, they are not doing that line anymore, the Sega Ages line. They're not doing it. It It doesn't mean that they're not working with Sega. They've already said, well, we still got plans for Sega, but uh, just the style and what they did in, in particular for making Fantasy Star much more playable for modern times, I would have liked to see that applied to Fantasy Star 2, which I actually have a retro review of on the, on the site if you want to go read it, which is a really super, super ambitious RPG that came out at, around the time the NES was, was chugging along with Final Fantasy, the original, but... It has a lot of problems that makes it a little bit hard to play, despite that it has like a really fascinating sci-fi universe that I've always loved, the Fantasy Star sci-fi universe. And I would have just liked to go at it again with M2's like, you know, maps, their improved UI. Uh, Fantasy Star 3 I never played, so I don't know how that is, but I would like to give it another try. Fantasy Star 4, that's one of our top 25 RPGs, actually. You can go read that analysis on our site. But um, that's more or less good the way it is. It's a great RPG, but it could use a little bit of tuning up. Um, the inventories aren't that great. Like all the names of things have are truncated, so you can't see what the hell they are. And um, the encounter rate is kind of insane. So I would have liked to see M2 give a little bit of, get that a little bit of a spit shine and put it up on the Switch. And whatever they do next, I hope they do involve Fantasy Star somehow, even if it's not the Sega Ages line. Well, I wouldn't be shocked if they went and got a little more ambitious. It's time for M2 to take on the Dreamcast. Oh, now that's a fascinating prospect. It's a shame that there aren't really many RPGs on the actual Dreamcast. If you go listen to our console RPG quest for the Dreamcast, 
there are some really interesting, obscure import games. But beyond that, uh, do you like Fantasy Star Online? Do you like Grandia 2? Do you like Skies of Arcadia? Okay, you're done. <laughs> oh, I, I would not say no to Skies of Arcadia on the Switch. <laughs> I mean, nobody would. <laughs> and uh, as for Fantasy Star Online, well, that's getting a, a total overhaul. Uh, not quite a Realm Reborn, but something like it. Um, if I had more time for an MORPG instead of wasting all my life on Final Fantasy XIV, I'd probably play it. Nadia, what? don't ever say that you're wasting your life on Final Fantasy XIV <laughs> and that you should be playing Fantasy Star Online too. That's just, no, does not compute. You're playing my the husband, best one already. That's the thing. Um, I know a lot of people have attachments to older MMORPGs because of nostalgia. Someone's always going to like wow over Final Fantasy XIV because they've been playing it since time immemorial. I still have a soft spot for Ragnarok Online, which is still thriving. It has a really, really active community in the Philippines, believe it or not. But uh, yeah, Final Fantasy XIV, you're right. It is the best one. Um, it also has the best community. It's a lot lower stress than most of the uh, other RPGs. So there's really no reason to abandon it, especially how great the storytelling is and all the little references I catch all the time. Anyway, if you want to be able to see nuggets of information, little essays that come out every single Wednesday, subscribe to our newsletter, which is written by Nadia and includes all of the RPG news. Speaking of RPG news, let's get to it, Nadia. You put together the show notes this week, and the top item is Cat is sad about Wasteland 3. <laughs> you seem to be quite sad about Wasteland 3, which is a little bit different from everyone else who was happy about Wasteland 3. Yeah, it has solid reviews from various sites that I've never heard of. Uh, some of the more <laughs> reputable go. sites gave it more middling reviews. Right, right. Um, you seem to be kind of enjoying it last time we talked about it, but not really totally 100% sold. It's fine. It's a good RPG. I'm not saying that it's bad in any shape, way, shape, or form, but it, I streamed it for about six hours over a mm. couple of days, and... There was a point, so there's a quest with the Gippers. This is the Ronald Reagan cult. Very cute idea. <laughs> I mean, it's box standard Fallout quest with the, right. the wacky cult that harkens back to some nostalgic thing. Instead of the 1950s, it's the 1980s. And you have a binary choice between the Gippers and the machine cults. Or you can, uh, or you can kind of make them both mad by taking, uh, taking the item for yourself, but whatever. <laughs> Make um, the cult mad. Do it. There's also even a Liberty Prime-like statue that uh, it's a Ronald Reagan statue that shoots laser beams out of its eyes. It's cute. That's kind of boss, actually. It is actually kind of boss. But I'm also kind of like, eh, yeah, okay, whatever. Not that creative. <laughs> I like the machine cult. I like the machine communists a lot more. Well, they sound kind of interesting. Like that. You're right. That is kind of a binary choice. Uh, it's like the elephant from The Simpsons stomping through the Republican convention and the Democrat convention. The thing that really annoyed me was that looking at the choices, at least two of them pretty much involve having to fight your way all the way through the Gipper base. And the Gipper base is humongous. It's like three pretty large rooms. You're fighting a lot of bad guys along the way. Uh, eventually, you have to fight the Ronald Reagan statue. There are ways to avoid having to fight all through all of this, but having to fight through the base was a pain in the butt. And then there is a base next door that had these monster things that were not involved in the battle, but the battle system was registering them as present. So as a result, wow. the battle wasn't resolving, and you can't just run away or exit the battle. Uh, I had cleared out all the gippers. It was super annoying. So I was going into the next base trying to kill the, the monster animals, but then I accidentally 
uh, added some more like dire waste wolves onto the map who are even further away. I'm like, screw this. I'm not doing this anymore. I quit. This has been like two hours. Oh, that sounds so very, very, I could do, be doing something else right now. Anything else. Yeah, I, I was at the three and a half hour mark of my stream and I would like, it was just like, I don't want to play Wasteland 3 anymore. This is really boring. And, that is and a I long went, stream. And I played Monster Hunter World instead. That's and a good choice. Yeah. And what was making it even worse was that when you're fighting the Ronald Reagan statue, it's playing America the Beautiful the entire time. For three hours? Well, at least for more than an hour. It was cute uh. to start. But by the end, you're like, oh, my God, please stop. Change the channel. That almost made me stop entirely because I was just like, I can't do this again. I can't fight through this whole stupid base because I never actually finished that battle. And I screwed it up because I saved thinking that I had resolved the battle, but actually I had not. Oh, that's the worst. The the old, uh, so like, it, it sounds like maybe it was a bug, but I don't know if it was or not. But that just, you can't resolve anything after that because you Well, you I would have had to reload basically. a more than a day old save. Oh, okay. Still, yeah. that sucks. So I had to fight through the base. I did just because I wanted to keep going. And I was like, okay, finally through this part. And, you know, I did some more quests and it was fine. And the battle system, it's kind of like XCOM, but maybe not as good. And they like really were kind of hyping the, oh, but we actually have face-to-face -face encounters with characters, like with important characters. Right. But that's actually quite rare. And the musical cues kind of overstay their welcome. And I'm actually kind of not fond of the themes of the game. If you take in refugees and that kind of thing, you can do that, but you're going to screw everything up because maybe the patriarch was right the whole time. He's, oh. he, his methods are brutal, but he brings prosperity and keeps out all the bad guys. And if you, It makes the trains run on time, basically. Pretty much. If you, if you side with the bad guys, then uh, like the slavers and all of them, they're going to become flooding into Colorado and it's all going to be bad. That's... That's the, the the direction that I detect the story going in, which I find kind of annoying, actually. Sounds very video gamey, sort of yeah. po political. Story. So, oh, you want to help people, huh? Well, find let's find out how hard it is to feed them, huh? <laughs> Sucker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, Wasteland Three. I'm not extremely inclined to keep playing. I made it as far as Aspen, which was like one of the second to the main quests. And once again, I'm grinding through a very large base, and I'm like, why am I doing this? I got other things to play, like Monster Hunter World, a different kind of grind. Which, well, that's a good grind, though. That's a fun yeah, grind. Yeah, it's very beautiful on PC. And running on 60 frames per second, oh my gosh, with like no load times, oh, completely that redone cool. that game for me. I love it. I'm playing it again. Uh-oh, Cat's back in, everyone. I'm back in. I 200 hours wasn't enough. <laughs> Do you get to keep all your old save data? Like, can you transfer? No, no, it's because I was playing on the PS4, right. and that's no cross save. Usually, often you can do cross save if you have the Xbox, but uh, I do not. Ah, so right, right. Yeah, so I'm playing on PC. My housemate is also playing, and so I I, I tossed on the Defender armor, which is basically a cheat code to <laughs> run through the entirety of the the base story. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm playing with a great sword this time, and it's very different from the long sword in that it's very slow, but it hits like a freaking Mack truck. It's great. Awesome. I should really give Monster Hunter another try, but God, that's an, that's a really deep game that I cannot decipher sometimes. It's appropriate that I should be playing Monster Hunter World, given that we're doing the PSP RPG quest this week. Yeah, that is um, that's that's basically our topic for today. And of course, Monster Hunter is practically synonymous with PSP. But before we go on, I 
have been informed by a couple people that Colorado is not really that cold, and I'm sorry because apparently I made it sound like a frozen wasteland, and uh, it's only partially a frozen wasteland. So I I, I apologize for misrepresenting the, the great state of Colorado. I will say I am kind of curious about going into Colorado because I want to know if I'll get altitude sickness. I think that would be just interesting to experience. All right, before we head on to the PSP console RPG quest, there are a couple more headlines to run through really quickly. One is that The Witcher is getting a free next-gen upgrade. I have been, pl- I have actually been playing that one on Xbox One, and I am very hopeful that my save data will transfer over to Xbox Series X. I would hope, I would think so. I mean, Microsoft is pretty open about that sort of thing. It doesn't really block you from doing much. That's one actually good thing about the Xbox. Yeah, so that would be a great impetus to finally beat the last expansion pack. That would actually, like, I don't know what kind of upgrades we're getting, but uh, that would be uh, a good reason to go back, see all the pretty new upgrades, and uh, try to finish off that, uh, what was the last one, Blood and Wine, Blood and Roses? Blood and Wine, remember. yes. It's supposed to be, I heard nothing but good things about the expansion, so yeah, you should really give it a try. It's kind of remarkable, actually, how much The Witcher 3 has grown from a graphic standpoint since coming out in 2014, and all free upgrades, too. It's really awesome. I should get it on the Xbox because um, I don't really play my portable Xbox much, and the Switch version is just too a little too cramped for my liking. Well, you have a base Xbox, though. You, you can only really enjoy the graphical improvements if you have an Xbox One X. Yeah, I'm, I'm half blind anyway. It's all the same to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's all blurry. Continuing on, Toby Fox teased a little something for Undertale's fifth anniversary, which turned out to be a prog rock opera. I don't know if that's the thing he was teasing, but he did tease something, and there is an Undertale prog rock opera being released by Scarlet Moon Productions, so uh, those are two very nice happenings in, in one in one time period. I cannot remember exactly when Undertale's anniversary is. I think it's still a little bit away. I seem to remember playing it in September, later in October, and just really being blown away by it. Um, but he's saying, you know, don't expect anything new about Deltarune, which is what everyone wants to know about. <laughs> Square Enix announces updates to the buggered up Crystal Chronicles Remastered, which, uh, as you said earlier, Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles was astoundingly screwed up twice. It was. Isn't that interesting? They took a game, they screwed it up in the exact same way twice. That takes some talent. But yes, Square Enix recently tweeted at the time of this writing, uh, sorry, at the time of this reading, broadcasting, that um, basically they know there's been a lot of problems with Crystal Chronicles, uh, particularly in australia and new zealand people cannot connect in those regions and they're getting really mad i think square enix a couple of days ago even pulled the game from uh, australia and new zealand while they fixed this and that's one thing they addressed in their we're sorry letter like we're fixing this uh, things should be getting better already and then they kind of added a little something about listening to fan feedback and more fixes are coming and once they have a more like secure idea of what's going to happen and what's going to be changed they'll kind of announce what's going on I know the the number one demand from everybody is local co-op play because not having that in the game just makes zero sense whatsoever and it really robs this really charming cute game that could be a fun you know fun little multiplayer distraction of everything it's supposed to be it's 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 just really baffling why they went with online only I'll give it I'll give Square Enix this they have been fairly good about responding to fan feedback and continuing to support the game they just toss it into the wild and say well have fun that's really screwed up oh well yeah um, i mean squeenix is the king of doing that i mean look at final fantasy 14 for your prime example 
But generally, not every single time, but when there is a problem, they do tend to respond. Uh, the Chrono Trigger port, which was horrendous on the PC, was just inexcusably bad. Like, they responded to the criticism and said, okay, you know what, we're sorry, we're going to fix this. And they did. They, uh, the way I understand it is Chrono Trigger was basically the mobile game ported onto, every, onto the PC and even the interface, everything like that, and it was so terrible. So they went back and they fixed all of that. And it might have been the same case here, where they made a game for mobile, because Crystal Chronicles is available on mobile, and transferred it over to the consoles, and that just went as well as you can expect. So I guess they have to basically pull another Chrono Trigger and try to make this thing playable. And finally, Aiden Chronicles finishes with over 4.5 million on Kickstarter, making it the third most funded Kickstarter video game behind Shenmue and Bloodstained. Yeah, um, it did really, really excellently. I think it hit pretty much all of its stretch goals. Uh, I knew it was going to be do well, but I did not really realize it was going to do... I did not think it was going to do 4.5 million well. I did not think that either. It's really impressive, but Suikoden has been held up as one of the greatest RPGs ever by, for quite a long time. There's a lot of groundswell and love around that, and people just seem to really have a thing for classic 16-bit JRPGs at this point. So those two elements coming together, I think created a really nice groundswell around this particular Kickstarter. And also, all of the media outlets immediately covered it, and people like Jason Schreier was going, oh my god! So, yeah, yeah. I, I bet they got a huge boost from Jason Schreier, who was actually on our... He was on our episode about Suikoden 2 when it came out for the 25... Sure top 25 RPGs, yeah. That was a good episode. You should go back and listen to it if you haven't. Okay, that is all of our RPG news. Let's continue on to the PSP console RPG quest. Don't go away. Alright, it's time to continue on with the Console RPG Quest, our series devoted to exploring the legacies of every console that we can possibly think of that came out over the years. Last time we did the Nintendo DS, and this time around we are going to do its competitor, the PlayStation Portable. The PlayStation Portable, a true challenger to Nintendo's handheld dominance. With PS2 dominating all, it seems like the Sony was poised to vanquish Nintendo once and for all. Nadia, what were our mer earliest memories of the PSP? Why don't you go first? You know what? I actually got a PSP quite early because a really good friend of mine, the same friend who gave me the DS actually, gave me a PSP. Uh, funny enough, I was not really into it for the RPGs, at least not at first. I really wanted it because of uh, Mega Man Maverick Hunter X and uh, Mega Man Powered Up, which um, are both really good games. And... Uh, as I recall, K.J. Inafune was supposed to basically redo the Mega Man X games in the style of Maverick Hunter X on the PSP. Unfortunately, it didn't get beyond the first one. Same goes for uh, Mega Man Powered Up, which despite its really cutesy look, it was probably one of the best action games on that system. And I really would have loved to see Mega Man 2 done in the same style, but again, it didn't get beyond what we got. And that's really too bad. But... Uh, I ha yeah, I had the original PSP, and then my I gave it to my brother. I loaned it to him, and he lost it on a bus in Virginia. He bought me a new one to replace it, but it was a really cruddy second run, you know, when they had the more plastic sort of uh, manufacturing going on. Because the original PSP, was a, it was a nice little bit of hardware. It had a really good heft to it. It was had, like, 
It's kind of like holding a die-cast transformer versus a, a plastic transformer. Whoa. So I'm completely the opposite, Nadia. I very much prefer the lighter PSP 2000 to the clunkier, heavier PSP 1000. Not the least because the screen's way better. I guess, yes, I will give you that. The screen is way better, and it didn't have that little problem of ejecting discs in the middle of play like the first one did. My earliest memory of the PSP, aside from all of the hype, because there was a lot of hype around the PSP. Oh, yeah, yeah, there was. I thought it was going to demolish everything. Yeah, well, so did everybody. I mean, the way that everybody was talking about it. The first time you see an actual image of it, you're like, holy cow, look at this thing. It's gorgeous. It has this enormous screen. Compared to the GBA, like, it looked like a piece of tech, right? Versus a toy, which is what Sony was obviously going for. And so the first time I ever held one, I actually, when it came out, I drove to Best Buy and asked to see it. And they were like, (laughs) oh, we got a PSP in the back and here. And so they brought it out. Was not impressed, Nadia. Oh, really? Yeah. I... I was expecting to be completely blown away, and instead I got a very muddy version of Twisted Metal that had load times. You know, when I think about it, I think maybe the first time I actually held a PSP was I did something similar. I was in a, a Best Buy, and you know when they have those those dudes walking around with like the PSPs or consoles attached to them, and you just kind of play them like you're holding onto someone's umbilical cord? That's what I did, and it was really awkward. So, uh, yeah, maybe that tainted oh, so my you were in memory. the games industry by then. But you know how it is when you're a games writer. You can usually can't afford your own consoles. <laughs> I was a few years out from the games industry at that point. Yeah, that was a, so it was a, it was 2005. So yeah, I was in the games industry, but I was really just starting out. Like I had a few articles on One Up basically, and that was it. The PSP, after much hype, so it was announced in 2003. Uh, it was supposed to come out in 2004. I believe it was delayed actually into early 2005. Which I remember feeling like it was kind of a mistake because the Nintendo DS came out in the holiday period and was basically unchallenged in the holiday 2004. It only was competing against itself with the GBA. And the PSP came out in early 2005, which is kind of an awkward time to be releasing for a a system. It came out on March 24th. That is a little strange. That is basically the end of the fiscal year, but... Mm -hmm. It's still, so I can see why Sony would want it for then. But yes, you're right, because they basically missed out on the holiday season. And during that holiday season, Nintendo got a really good foothold in with the DS. It also came out, it was more expensive than in Japan. It came out at a $250 price point. Right. Yeah, it was not cheap. And DS was, by comparison, quite a bit cheaper. So that was another strike against it. Still had a pretty strong library out of the gate had games like Spider-Man 2, Wipeout Pure. It had Luminous, which was an early killer app for the system, and James Milky yes. would not shut up about it. <laughs> yes, he worked on it, didn't he? Yeah, he, uh, that was a pretty cool game. Yeah, he eventually went to work for Q under Mizuguchi, and I think he worked on a version of Luminous. And there was also Metal Gear, Sol- Metal Gear Acid, which... Oh, uh, is that the card game? Yeah, that was a weird card game, and everyone was like, whoa, Metal Gear, whoa, what the heck is oh, this? this is Metal Gear, but it did eventually get Peace Walker, which is one of the best in the series. Also the Portable Ops games, which a friend of mine was playing for quite a long time. Oh, that's cool. And there was Darkstalker Chronicles, the Chaos Tower, which showed that, hey, look, I mean, like that alone, just showing those graphics showed how much better the graphics were on the PSP than they were on the Nintendo DS. 
Yes, uh, that is one thing that became very apparent, especially a little bit later on, is that the PSP was capable, more than capable, of emulating PlayStation-style graphics, and it was challenging the PS2 at times. Like, well, I'm sure we'll get into Persona, but uh, that had the PSP had the improved versions of the Persona games on on their system. The PSP was billed as the Walkman of the 21st century, and it was really kind of a Trojan horse for the UMD format. Which, yeah. Ninten- which Sony was hoping to push. Sony was all about its different formats between DVD and Blu-ray. Beta. <laughs> like PS3 was just, we'll get into this, but PS3 was just a Trojan horse for the Blu-ray format because Sony loved its physical media. Sony very, very much has always loved its physical media. It's always loved its proprietary physical media, which has been a huge, you know, hobbling point for it, including the PSP, because as I recall... They weren't just trying to push this as a gaming system. They were trying to push it as a movie watcher, too. And that did not. Mm-hmm. Did, I think you might find a, a couple of movies on UMD if you go to a garage sale or something. But they exist out there. The very notion of UMD video is hilarious. It, I loved that. That particular very specific era in media when they were putting stuff like Pokemon episodes on cartridges for the Game Boy Advance and letting kids watch this, like, 200-pixel resolution half hour of ash and pikachu and it was like it must have been so it was kind of amazing for its time but it it expired real fast well this was right before the ipod came out exactly with the, the better screen and even then you didn't really want to watch videos on that little ipod screen it was it didn't really work no no and if you were downloading downloading it digitally it took up so much space they were pointless I downloaded the entire first season of Lost onto my iPod, and oh my, God. my my iPod basically was like, uh, yeah, well, good luck having any music on this thing anymore. <laughs> Hope you like listening to Lost for the rest of your life. It also took forever to get episodes of Lost onto that thing. It was ridiculous. Oh, yeah. The, the uploading stuff to the iPod. Oh, man. You had to I'm... plug the iPod into the computer. You did. There was no other way to do it. I had an iPod Nano, and it was the same. Oh, man, that Nano lasted for 10 years. That was great. That seemed hilariously archaic at the time. But So, yeah, the idea of UMD video, obviously, mobile platforms would come around and completely knock that out. And honestly, the PSP would suffer a lot because of the rise of mobile, which we will get to. And, of course, the Nintendo DS both undercut it. And had better portable games, honestly. Like, the PSP was... uh, Well, I think the popular narrative is that the PSP was undone by its desire to have console-level experiences on handheld. The problem was that they were inferior to the actual console experience. They just didn't look as good. See Twisted Metal. And also, uh, it was hampered by long load times. It had poorer battery life. It was more expensive. And frankly, most people didn't want to sit and have a full console experience. You wanted quick, bite-sized experiences, which is why Luminous was a killer app to start because it was the most Nintendo DS or Game Boy-like experience. It's funny how, in a way, it was ahead of its time because now you have the Switch, which is literally a console experience in the palm of your hand and everyone's eating it up. But despite that, I mean, if the PSP quote-unquote failed, which I don't really think it did, and I'll get to that, It was not for want of trying by Sony. They did support the thing for like six years. They put out multiple hardware revisions, had a large library, including in the U.S. For various reasons, we seem to have kind of written it off, uh, especially in North America. But there was a long period of time where it was still chugging along and 
you know, still fairly popular here. Yeah, it, it definitely had, like, I wrote fail just because I think I wasn't thinking very hard, but no. Yeah, it you did- wrote, why did the PSP fail here? <laughs> no, I, when you think, when you talk about fail, you're talking about something like the Virtual Boy. It definitely did not fail. It was still a console that I would see on subways every so often, not as much as the DS, but it was definitely there. And, of course, it was a much bigger success in Japan, but uh, it had some things here that I really loved. Like, it has an adaptation of Breath of the Fire 3, which I, which is great. I still play that from time to time. And uh, could you download PS1 games to the Vita, or is that only the... Sorry, could you download them to the PSP, or was that only the Vita? No, you totally could. You could play yeah, Final so, Fantasy VII on it. I was playing Metal Gear Solid on it. Yeah, exactly. So I'm pretty sure I was using it, if for nothing else, for a really good PS1 RPG portable system. Which, by the way, was rad. Yeah, absolutely. I I was playing a. That's how I, I re. That there, there was a big deal when they re-released uh, Suikoden Two finally, and people mm-hmm. to play it on their PSPs. Yeah, one of the reasons that they took so long, they dragged their feet so long to re-release Suikoden Two, was because the localization was so bad that Sony was kind of going, eh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, th- this this gentleman here has a box that wasn't translated. Um, are you sure this is a good idea? Yeah, just do it. Just do it. One more item about the launch of the PSP. Uh, South Park did an episode about it in which uh, Kenny gets a golden PSP and everybody is obviously uh, really fascinated by it, but then he dies and he has to use the golden PSP to stop the forces of hell from invading heaven. But he gets dragged back to Earth into a persistent vegetative state. So they have to kill him to allow him to go up to heaven to save the afterlife. That was such a weird episode because that mm-hmm. was the one where the kids are trying to deal with Kenny's death. And that's the whole joke is he dies all, every, all the time. But now it's just like, I don't understand why Kenny has to die. Mom, dad, why does it have to be like this? What a weird twisted episode. I just remembered that. But it really showed how much hype there was around the PSP at the time because... I mean, everybody was treating the PSP as just the coolest thing ever, much like a few years later when uh, Cartman would be frozen in time so that he could get a, a Nintendo Wii early, or like he wouldn't right. have to wait for a Nintendo Wii. Yeah. And that that was a huge boost for the Wii. By the way, I don't really like South Park anymore, but that's neither here nor there. Continuing on. <laughs> I, like I watched a lot time. of South Park in that time, though. I think everyone watched a lot of South Park in that yeah. time, so you're not alone. So an early issue that the PSP suffered, Nadia, hacking. It had a major, major hacking problem. Hackers almost immediately figured out how to run unsighted code on the memory stick. And from there, it was pretty much a constant battle of firmware updates and hardware revisions to stop it. And no matter, they put out the PSP 2000. No, hackers figured that one out. They put out the PSP 3000. I don't pretty sure that they figured that one psp 1000 was the most susceptible yeah to actual hacking people were playing super nes games on it (laughs) i actually recently was on a subway and there was a guy there playing a psp and i'm like oh cool what's he playing i kind of peer over his shoulder like you do and he's playing some kind of some kind of hack of the legend of zelda link to the past where it's obviously been hacked to be one of those crazy ass challenge games and he's just playing this on a PSP, and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that that checks out. I never, even though I had an R4 card and everything for my DS, I never hacked my PSP. Neither did I, no. Um, my PSP was definitely less used than my, my DS. So I ultimately got a PSP in 2008. I waited about three years to finally get one. I was playing DS for the most part. Um, I bought one when the PSP 3000 came out in Japan. I did not realize at the time 
that the PSP 3000 screen had some interlacing issues versus the PSP 2000. Oh, did it? I didn't know that. Yeah, it was kind of a weird hardware level issue because they mm. changed a few things within it. But yeah, so I finally got a PSP 3000. And I think pretty much every single one of the games that I owned for it was uh, in Japanese. So Oh, interesting. Uh, that's right. You were yeah. in Japan at the time, right? I was in Japan at the time. I was playing games like uh, Super Robot Wars. I was playing Gundam Battle Universe, which was actually a very good, very good game that takes place across the entirety of the Universal Century world and lets you switch between uh, the two sides, you know, the Federation or the Xeon and so on and so forth. Um, That's cool. And there was Macross uh, Ace Frontier, which is another game that was pretty good. And I got I got Mega Man powered up. Uh, oh, yeah. It's a nice little box set with uh, Rockman. So, yeah, I, I had a lot of games for the thing. I was always I, – I enjoyed playing it. I put a lot of time into it. I think the only thing that really annoyed the heck out of me was those load times. Yeah, the load times were not great. Um, I guess accessing the UMD was a, a, a big chore for the portable system. So let's talk about the RPGs that are on the PSP. Would you be shocked to know that a lot of PS2 and PS1 games got ported to the PSP, Nadia? <laughs> I am incredibly shocked. I've already mentioned um, Breath, of, Breath of Fire 3 got the port from the PSP. Sorry, from the PlayStation to the PSP and... It's an okay version. It has low times. Again, that's the problem. But um, it's, I think it's the only version you can get these days. Like if you want to download a, a, a version, you can't get the PS1 version anymore. Really? Yeah, which is weird. The Japanese video games were in a little bit of a weird place at the time when the PSP came out. Um, right at the end, well, not the end, I want to say. Well, the end of this of that particular generation. The PS2 would persist for quite a bit longer. PS3 comes out in 2006. And just is a total non-starter in Japan. Japanese games are suddenly struggling mightily. Western developers are kind of are having a lot more success on platforms like the Xbox 360. Nobody really knows how to deal with the Unreal Engine and everything. So Japanese developers respond by staying with the PS2 and to an extent the Wii way longer than maybe they might have otherwise. And also they put a lot of focus on the DS and the PSP. In fact, the DS and the PSP were pretty much the only two platforms I really thought about while I was living in Japan, in addition to my PlayStation 2. Yeah, as you, as you said, the, the PlayStation 3 was a non-starter for quite a while. It was. And meanwhile, there's this little game that launches for the PlayStation 2. It's called Monster Hunter. It's a game about fighting monsters, and it manages to take off. And when the PSP comes out, they port it to the PSP. And eventually, uh, there's a little game that comes out called Monster Hunter Freedom Unite, which is an absolutely enormous freaking game, huge amounts of content, and it is a hit. It is a major hit. Like, I just remember all of a sudden noticing, Nadia, that freaking everybody was playing Monster Hunter on the trains. It was <laughs> everywhere. That does sound like a perfect commute game. Like, hey, we got to go home from school. It's a long ride home. Let's all play Monster Hunter. I just remember looking at the constant load times <laughs> yeah the black screen now loading i don't know how many times i'm gonna mention load times in this episode but a lot apparently <laughs> yeah as you say it was one of the biggest failings for the system and it's a bit of a shame yeah but i watched people playing monster hunter and i was like oh it's kind of a neat looking game but it immediately became very popular there were kids playing it everywhere i mean the ds was still a common sight on trains but i saw the psp it was about a 50 50 split uh, between mm -hmm. the PSP and the Nintendo DS. And when new Monster Hunter games came out, oh my gosh, people were everywhere playing. 
the and PSP. And Capcom sure made sure that Monster Hunter games came out. <laughs> and when uh, Monster Hunter was at TGS, that was by far the biggest line uh, to get in and play it. I would play it at demos for like TGS 2008, 2009. I'd be like, what? I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing about Monster Hunter. You think, oh, cool, it's just slaying monsters. I can get into this. And then it's an you action get... game, yeah. yeah it's very yeah. slow. Exactly. You don't really realize that until you pick up the game for yourself and say, oh, this is not exactly, this isn't Zelda where you just hack and slash your way through to victory. No, this is very methodical. Yeah, well, that's part of the charm of it. But mm-hmm. yeah, you'd be walking past malls and McDonald's and you'd see just uh, gangs of Japanese kids hanging out with various PSPs playing uh, playing Monster Hunter, so it kind of took over and really gave the PSP's sales a boost over there, and also had a large impact on Japanese RPGs as a whole. Specifically, a lot of games started being multiplayer co-op. Yes, definitely. Yeah, so I, I think a, a really good example, Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, built basically as a multiplayer game. Like, that, that was a direct result of monster hunters just crazy popularity yeah although when i think about it you mentioned of course that it took off very quickly in japan but does do north americans really have that tendency to kind of sit around with semi strangers and, and play games together would you say no i just know that it was a kind of social pressure kind of thing over in japan oh interesting where if you you'd be in the office and like the rest of your office mates would be playing monster hunter and they'd be like so are you gonna join in and you'd be like uh, i guess <laughs> you know sure i guess it's better than when you're a kid here and it's like hey, here, here's a cigarette you're gonna smoke the thing is in japan i mean the cities were way closer together right? right like everybody you could get on a train and go hang out with your friends over at the little mcdonald's you didn't invite people over to your house like that's not a thing you go to a public place and you hang out and what are you gonna do when you're hanging out in a public place i don't know break out the psp and play some monster hunter do they is is gathering in a house not really a big thing of japanese city no. culture really no definitely That's interesting. not no you go to the you go to the pub oh oh i guess yeah. if houses are small then it'd be a little bit yeah. of pain yeah and it's kind of a private embarrassing thing to invite somebody uh, over so i can go, i can relate to that you go to an izakaya and you have some drinks with your friends and play monster hunter or just get drunk whatever but yeah that works yeah and meanwhile over here in north america you know the xbox 360 is out and that is when online play is mm. majorly taking off so that was a sign of the huge gap between north american gaming culture where it was all about playing halo and and that kind of thing and over in japan where it was all about playing monster hunter yeah you're right that's very interesting and i guess we just preferred kind of playing anonymously with some guy who's going to send us a dirty message later calling us an asshole <laughs> because we wanted halo and that's why that was a big reason that it didn't really translate over here initially because I mean, American cities are so much more spread out, and mm-hmm. you have to get in a car often, you have to go over to your friend's house, it's a lot harder to gather up with large groups. You have to make an appointment, it's not spontaneous. Right, no, there's not a lot of spontaneous in our, spontaneity in our society, is that the word? Spontaneity, spontaneity. I do remember finding it kind of annoying that freaking everything seemed to be multiplayer co-op at a certain point, though, and it was all coming up for the PSP, I was like, okay, stop, relax, <laughs> we don't need it all to be out on the PSP. Because now, I guess at the height of the PSP's popularity, that's when you were in Japan, because I don't remember anybody really caring about the multiplayer aspect of a PSP over here. It could have happened, and I wasn't paying attention, but I don't think it was. No, they really didn't. Monster Hunter 
was kind of a Dragon Quest situation where I was like, well, was, when's Monster Hunter ever going to get popular over here? And, and it wasn't it until happen. Monster Hunter World that it finally worked. And lo and behold, it's because it was on a console. Yeah. Isn't that funny? I didn't think that would, it would work that way, but it finally worked. And also because they streamlined it quite a bit. They did. Yes. Uh, so yeah, there were quite a few games that were impacted by Monster Hunter. Some of them popular RPG series, uh, Final Fantasy Explorers, which would later come out on the Nintendo 3DS. That I was a Monster Hunter. Got about that game. I know Parrish reviewed it back in the day, and he was just not impressed, and I was disappointed. Yeah, it was a cut rate Monster Hunter clone. Uh, there was God Eater, which was the faster paced, more intense one that people were like, "Well, this one's more accessible," but it's also. Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Cafe leaves reviews again. Eh, It's fine. Uh, Freedom Wars, Tokaiden, Soul Sacrifice. Uh, So yeah, like a lot of Monster Hunter type clones, but it's tough to beat the original. Monster Hunter was the one of the biggest. And honestly, like Monster Hunter is one of the handful of franchises that you just can guarantee will sell millions in Japan still. Yeah, um, I'm assuming Monster Hunter World did gangbusters there as well as it did here yes it did very pop it was very popular that's over good. there just like dragon quest 11 very popular that's good yeah everybody love rpgs i command it <laughs> so beyond monster hunter let's talk about some of the other games that came out on the psp i already mentioned that there are a lot of ports uh case in point sting sting really had a good run on the psp which in which brought along enhanced ports of various GBA and Wonderswan games. Uh, one of the big ones was Riviera, which we have already talked about for the track of the week. Right. And there was also Igri Union, Nights in the Nightmare, Gunier. Uh, there was Hexis Force, which is a little bit like Threads of Fate. And Sting was a, a lot of fun because, first of all, their games were very pretty, Nadia. Very mm-hmm. good sprite art. Yeah, definitely. And also, they always added a little bit of a twist. Uh, just that... What a twist to their <laughs> particular RPGs where uh, they would, for example, make it really hard to grind in Gunier or a game like Yggdra Union would superficially kind of like resemble Fire Emblem, but the the battle system was inevitably very complicated or in Riviera, there's like positioning and tactical planning was a big thing. So they really had a lot of fun with the systems in those games. I like, and, I like, like I said, but they were pretty to look at too. Yeah, there you go. Win-win, because I, I just like games that kind of screw with your expectations a little bit, just to just to make your life a little bit harder. And you know the devs are having a great time doing it. That was the thing with the PSP. Uh, I did not particularly like it when it did 3D models, because I yeah. thought they were inferior to the PS2, and God, they looked horrible next to the PS3. But when it came to sprite art, sprite art on the psp like it made it stand out so much more than the nintendo ds it did some of the sprite art on there was gorgeous um i've already mentioned three times already breath of fire 3 uh, which mm-hmm. is one of the best looking sprite games ever got a really nice it looks fine visually it's great um one game we'll probably talk about in a minute here is uh jean d'arc which level five i think is their first tactical rpg it's a really good looking game their sprites just look really rich and large whereas the ds kind of dinky that's not to say that 3D could look bad no, on no. the PSP. I mean, for example, uh, Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep and Crisis Core, both very good-looking games on the PSP. Square really took that system to another level with those games. They did. Square had a real talent for the PSP. We mentioned Crisis Core, which, by the way, there will be an episode about Crisis Core on Retronauts that I was on. I look for it soon. That was a really good-looking game, and they came out around the same time as the 
Dissidia games for the kind of weird-ass fighting games that Square had going on. And the models in that, I still look at them and say, yeah, those are really good-looking games. And uh, Crisis Core also had some of the best cutscenes I've seen in RPG. Just how they're really well done and really well directed, and they're on this little tiny system. It's, it's pretty interesting. Square, they they brought out the big guns for the PSP, and I appreciate that. Well, as long as we're talking about Crisis Core, it's might as well delve into it a little bit more. We've talked about Crisis Core in our compilation of Final Fantasy VII episode that came out earlier this year, but the, the thrust of it is that Crisis Core is a prequel starring Zack Fair. If you played Final Fantasy VII Remake, uh, it actually ties in somewhat heavily into yes, FF7 Remake. It does. It ties in very heavily to the point that actually uh, when I was researching this, I realized there was a very specific line uh, that was used in Remake to reference Crisis Core. Uh, in Crisis Core, Aerith says something about how she's scared of the sky because it's so large and she's used to being covered by the plate in the slums of Midgar. And in the Final Fantasy VII Remake, during a certain point at the very end of the game, you probably know what I'm talking about, she looks up and says, I miss the steel sky. And in Japan, apparently she says, I hate the sky. So that's just a nice little connection right there. And I was saying on Retronauts, if these games are so connected, then we should really get some kind of port of Crisis Core. And on the show, we agreed that maybe it's a little bit archaic these days. Maybe it's a little bit hard to play and a little bit attuned for an older system. But it would be easy enough to kind of guzzy up and put on the Switch or, or even the PS4 just to kind of give us that link. Otherwise, it's a very hard game to find. So this is how I'm going to rag on Crisis Core a little bit. May as well. You know what cri Crisis Core is, Nadia? Mm-hmm. It is solo a Star Wars story for Final Fantasy. No, it's not. It doesn't suck. Yeah, it totally is. <laughs> it Look, solo a Star Wars story is a perfectly serviceable Star Wars. Fine. But it is so obsessed with coming up with an origin story for every freaking aspect of Solo's backstory, just like Crisis Core is. They had to have a freaking origin for the Buster Sword. They had to have an origin for the origin of the Buster Sword. <laughs> they did. I will admit to that. Although it's they had to have a origin for why Aerith was a flower girl. They had to have an origin for the freaking one-winged angel aspect. Come on. Uh fucking one-winged angels. But yeah, you're right. Um it is totally solo when you put it that way. It's still good. But it's uh yeah. Yeah. It has It tells a it tells an, a decent story. Like I think everybody remembers the end and how well the end was executed. And how nicely tied into the systems while forgetting that this, everything to do with Genesis was pretty stupid. Yeah, I mean, I'll agree to that. Everything to do with Genesis. But otherwise, there were some really good bits of character interaction in that. I really like the way like Zack and, and Cloud got along and how Zack takes care of Cloud when he's kind of Mako poisoned, has no idea what's going on. Of course, the ending is just heart-wrenching to this day. Uh, it has its moments, and I think, like I said, if it, if it is going to be so connected to Remake, we should be able to access it in a way that doesn't involve this dusty-ass thing lying at the bottom of my drawer. Crisis Core came out in late 2007 in Japan. came out in early 2008, and I remember at the time, the PSP already felt like it was kind of sputtering and running out of gas in the U.S., I think the PSP did have a stronger start, but then it, it sputtered, as you say. and kind of, It was a little bit like the Wii in that regard. It, was, it came out really mm. swinging, and then, eh, I have this. What are you going to do with it? The thing was is that there were popular games that came out in North America, like the Grand Theft Auto like 
uh, three stories and the Liberty City stories, that kind of thing. Uh, those were very popular and successful games. And then also there were the really amazing God of War games. Like they did an right. amazing job with those. I think was a God of War. I can't remember the name of the God of War game that was on there, but it is definitely one of the best uh, PSP games available. I mean, if you look at the way that the PSP was supported to the versus the PS Vita, it's just no it's no contest. No, absolutely not. Uh, PSP was Sony did put his weight behind it. It did try. It didn't always work out, but it did try. Whereas the PS Vita was like, eh, go die somewhere. I mean, they didn't give it a huge amount of attention, but they were still putting out bundles. Some of the biggest franchises were still coming out fairly late into its lifestyle. Uh, it had a do you remember the Kevin Butler ads? They had a, oh, right. a PSP compa- companion art, uh, ad for that as well. <laughs> I just remembered those, yes. I mean, it wasn't like the PSP was a total non-starter. I, I was at Sony's headquarters before the pandemic for MLB The Show, man. Oh, back when, the olden Back days. when we could still go places, yeah. And they have a little museum dedicated to all of their different consoles in the lobby, which is kind of cool. And they had a, a looping... A trailer from like 2010 for the PSP and I was kind of just standing there going wow there's a lot of games that came out on it like all of the EA sports games were coming out on it for quite a while uh, MLB the show that kind of thing yeah like Ratchet and Clank yeah mm-hmm. they were, they were, it seemed like whenever the PS3 or something would have a big uh, kind of push the PSP would work in there some way uh, they had like PSP to PS3 connectivity where you would be able to uh, basically have transfer transfer saves it was it was neat yeah it did have uh, it did have a lot of strengths and uh it lasted for a long time in japan i guess but it just did not have the the going power here but it's still it's not like anyone looked at it and said ew what are you playing like what is that ancient that terrible ancient thing but no it, it had mm-hmm. its fan base a game that so as long as we're talking about square enix like i feel like we should probably talk about birth by sleep never kind of an interesting it. game because so we talked about kingdom hearts Kingdom Hearts really burst onto the scene with the PS2, and then Kingdom Hearts 2 comes out. And then there's a long lull, Nadia, yes. where they don't really put out a full sequel until a couple years ago, honestly, with Kingdom <laughs> Hearts 3. <laughs> You're right. And in the interim, they put out a lot of weirdo side stories, like the 358 by over two days. What does that mean? Uh, Dream Drop Distance on the 3DS. And then there's Birth by Sleep on the PSP, which is probably one of the most beloved entries in the series. Was this the one that came out? Like, this was the first really big thing after Kingdom Hearts 2, wasn't it? Unlike the, the DS version, it just didn't look that good on the DS. It was fine. You know, it had some nice cutscenes, but Birth by Sleep felt like much more like the real deal. Exactly. Right? It felt a little bit more like an actual console entry. Yeah. And if you were really into the lore of Kingdom Hearts, <laughs> which people lore <laughs> people the are. disney aspects did not fit very heavily into birth by sleep but if you're really into lore it introduced some pretty popular characters and it was split into three different stories and yeah it recycled a fair amount but on the psp it looked gorgeous like i look at screenshots now i'm like wow that looks pretty good yeah i, I looked at them too and i noticed the character models are nicely rounded uh, versus what you usually get on the psp which is a little bit square and blocky it was kind of a later life a PSP game, but it was kind of a nice exclamation mark on the series on the platform. I feel. Yeah, and again, I think this is a good example of Square Enix really treating the PSP like a console and not just a, a throwaway handheld platform. All right, Nadia, 
this is the part of the episode in which I have my Super Robot Wars minute, and I have to talk about the legacy of the Super Robot Wars series on it. So the PSP, like so many other, as with so many other aspects, a lot of PS2 ports initially on the Super on the PSP, uh, specifically a portable, which was actually a GBA remake, oh. uh, but using the Impact slash MX engine, and then SRW MX, which was an actual port of MX for the PS2, which in turn was a game that reused a bunch of assets from Super Robot Wars Impact. Um, those were words, I know. People are going, yeah, I don't know what any of this is. The one that you should know about is Super Robot Wars Z2, which is a sequel to the best Super Robot Wars game ever made, in my estimation. It had a fair number of compromises, Nadia. It, would it have to, got yeah. rid of the tri-attack system that was in Z, uh, so that it only had single units again. It removed the kind of nicer isometric look to the maps and instead had just little helmet icons, sort of like the way that it was on the old GBA. I've been vetching about load times this entire time. Its load times were so much better than they were on A-Portable. Like, mm, interesting. dramatically improved. The problem with A-Portable was every, every time you got into a fight, you had to sit there for like a couple sentence, seconds where you heard the disc spin. <laughs> And then the animation would start playing. You'd be like, kill me. This is the worst. So it's, it's not like you're just even like waiting. You're listening to your system die as you do it. With Super Robot Wars Z2, much faster. Still a very beautiful game. And it introduced uh, Votum's Code Geass, Garen Legan, Gundam 00. Mixed them in with classic Gundam Wing into a really good story. And by and large, while I didn't particularly like that they split it into two parts just so that they could get you <laughs> to spend more money, like I was pumped for Super Robot Wars Z2 when it came out. Uh, if you go back to old episodes of Role Player's Realm, you can listen to me react Ooh, to it in real time. I remember Role Player's Realm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all archived over on the internet. Thanks to the power of the internet. The power of the internet. Um, as I recall, Garen Lagan was a big thing by that point, so that would have been a really good entry. Yeah, everybody was obsessed with Garen Lagan and talking about how it was the craziest dang anime series of all time with people throwing galaxies at one another and everything. And <laughs> I have to say that visually it was very fun to look at. It's like, it reminds me of Gumbuster. It's like the super robot crazy pants version of Gumbuster aimed for the top. My, uh award for the weirdest uh, anime definitely goes to Fooly Cooly. I've never seen that one, but a lot of people love that. It's, uh, I don't know how to describe if I love it or, or hate it or what I, my feelings on <laughs> it. I just, my feelings are Fooly Cooly and that's it. And you should definitely watch it sometime to evaluate it for yourself. Our pals over at What a Cartoon uh, did a Fooly Cooly episode. So I, I didn't listen to that one because I've never seen it, but maybe someday. As long as we're talking about tactics RPGs, Nadia, the PSP did have a pretty strong tactics RPG legacy. Um, lots of ports, again, of Final Fantasy Tactics, uh, which was a pretty big deal when it came out over here because everybody, the Final Fantasy Tactics was a very popular hipster choice at the time. <laughs> the choice for hipsters, Final Fantasy Tic Tacs. I finally played War of the Lions. I really enjoyed it. They fixed the translation. That was the big one. Yeah, because the original PlayStation translation is very uh, bad. Yeah, like it's basically inscrutable. And also they had a decent aspect ratio. So that's so that that was nice. It was, yeah, like I remember playing War of the Lions, not 
a whole lot, but I did play it on iOS, and that was more or less the PSP version, and it was definitely a glow-up. I played War of the Lions on the PS Vita, because I got the PSP version on there. Yeah, that's where a lot of my PSP games live now, on my PS Vita. The somewhat superior Tactics Ogre also came out on the PSP, and then there was also Valkyria Chronicles 2, which I think was a really interesting case study, Nadia. So... Valkyria Chronicles comes out on the PS3, right? Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful. It immediately garners a fan base. Does not sell very well. Like Sega wanted it to be a transmedia franchise. It had an anime and everything. But it wasn't really hitting hard. They released a sequel on the PSP. And it is one of the better looking PSP games. The compromises were really evident in the absolutely tiny little missions compared to the sprawling, much more enjoyable Valkyria Chronicles. I mean, instead of the fully animated cutscenes, they have the little more 2D visual novel style with the characters talking to one another. They go, f- and then of course the big one is that it's a in a school setting. Yeah. So that they can make it more of a, a greater appeal, I think, a wider appeal to people. Here's the interesting thing, Nadia. They had a multiplayer mode because couldn't have a PSP game without local multiplayer. Gotta have multiplayer. That makes it a PSP game. I feel like Valkyria Chronicles 2 just kind of encapsulates the entire legacy of the PSP in terms of JRPGs. Yeah, that that kind of compromised sequel that is, is good in its own way, but isn't when you consider it as a as a continuation for a game you loved, it's kind of eh. And again, Birth by Sleep pulled that off, but a lot of games didn't. So we're pretty far into this. We haven't even hit two of the biggest aspects of the PSP's RPG legacy. And I think that's what we're going to wrap up with, Nadia. Mm -hmm. So the big one, Falcom. I feel like the PSP was the first time that Americans really got a feel for Falcom and all of its great legacy. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's interesting how Falcom, they tend to go where other Japanese developers don't want to go at first. Like <laughs> like the PC, that was one of the reasons why the West really started to get into their games because they released them on, on Steam when other Japanese developers mm-hmm. didn't really do have anything to do with Steam. And well, they were a PC developer first. Yeah, you know, yeah, Their, that's their true. legacies go back to the 80s, so it only makes sense for them to uh, support the PC and be like an early pioneer on the Steam. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But you kind of have the opposite going on with uh, the PSP where uh, they're releasing all these kind of niche Japanese RPGs for Westerners to enjoy for, in, in many cases, the first time. And we're all like, oh, hey, this is actually really cool. I'm actually still a latecomer when it comes to getting into Falcom's games. I really didn't start until I played like E6. Um, so I'd missed out on the hype on the PSP and the PS Vita because they supported that as well. But yeah, they put poured a lot of support into the PSP, and it's it's good that they did. I think some of the ones that are notable, E7. So E7 is definitely a legacy RPG series, and the fact that it got a numbered entry on the PSP was kind of a big deal, honestly. Um, I E7 was the first one I ever actually played, and oh, I really? enjoyed it at the time. Uh, the thing that I liked the most about it was the music. Uh, that music, oh, so very cool. high energy. If you ever want something to just listen to, Ease 8 Sunshine Coast is one of my favorite themes ever for an RPG because it's you watch up on a beach and you're alone, you have no idea what's going on and blah 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 and you think, "Oh, this is where you put the sad, you know, anxious music." 
But no, Sunshine Coast just booms right out of the gate and like, you know, it's like, screw you, I'm Adol, I have a sword and I've done this shit over and over again. I know what I'm doing. It's one it's just so full of energy. I love it. They also put out Ease, Oath and Falgana. Um, such a good game. Which is one of the absolute best Ease games. But I think the kind of the Cadillac one, the the one that people really swear by is Trails in the Sky, mm-hmm. which so it starts out on the PSP on the PC, eventually gets ported to the PSP, and in like 2006, and then f- five years later, which is a crazy amount of time to wait, <laughs> finally comes out in English on the American PSP. I remember when it came out because I was working for GamePro at the time. Oh, cool. I had a really good relationship with Atlas, and so I was like, oh, cool, Trails in the... Oh, no, was it Exceed? Exceed, my bad. Right, right. Um, I had a good relationship with them, too. And <laughs> uh, when it comes out, and it was just this odd curiosity because it looks like a PS1 RPG. Like, it's, it looks straight up like it came out in 1996, right? Yeah. Even it was 2011. I had a nice style to it, and I think a lot of people pointed out, well, to while the story itself wasn't amazing, the two main characters who are kind of this adopted brother-sister duo, they uh, really grow, and their relationship really grows, and they go beyond the typical anime archetypes into something that is deeply likable, mm-hmm. and so a ton of people just really got into it for that reason. And then it helped that Trails in the Sky had a very good meaty RPG system. It came out on Steam, so that made it more accessible so it wasn't locked to the PSP. And by and large, like the PSP was kind of the start of when Trails as it became a cult favorite RPG series. Yes, I have not played the original Trails yet. Um, I'm hoping to eventually. The actually the main characters for that game are not like major frontline characters in Trails of Cold Steel Three, but they are definitely present and uh, particularly the the girl I can't remember her name, but she helps. Estelle. What, what was that? Her name is Estelle. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm thinking of the wrong characters though, but definitely there definitely are characters from Trails of the, in the Sky that transfer over to Trails of Cold Steel, and that is the strength of the Trails of Cold Steel game is basically the relationships between the characters and yes trails from that moment that it hit the psp and came west it got a really dedicated fan base and to this day like i'm surprised at how many closet trails fans there are they always seem to seep out of the corners whenever i tweet about trails and they're like oh yeah cool i love trails trails is amazing you reign forever yeah i think it was about four years ago i did an interview with one of the key localizers of trails in the sky I think that was on the occasion of the release of Trails in the Sky SC. So mm-hmm. you should go check out that episode. Uh, various people found the podcast for because of that particular episode. Oh, really? So, so hopefully more yeah. find it for this one, too, because we're talking about <laughs> Trails. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that Falcom was one of the big winners because of the PSP. Like So much of their success in North America, I feel, stems from that and also its early uh, embrace of Steam. Another one that I think had a another series that really got a good push on the PSP was Persona. Yes. Which, I mean, I think Persona 3 Portable is one of the more no, most noteworthy one. It came out, interestingly enough, in, I think, 2010, around the time of the PSP Go. Do you remember the PSP <laughs> Go, Nadia? <laughs> I was actually, I was in a karate class where someone had a PSP Go. No way. You saw one in the wild? I saw one in the wild. The only one I ever saw. In the Scott Pilgrim comic, 
they i think in the final book uh scott is playing on a psp go because somebody didn't want it and they gave it to him as a hand-me-down <laughs> i think i remember that that is totally a scott pilgrim console a psp go if i recall correctly so one up broke the story it was one of the worst kept secrets ever mm-hmm. at the time they even had uh art of what it was going to look like and i think if i recall correctly it was a repurposed mobile phone <laughs> Yes, I think I remember that now. Holy crap. It was a whole big thing about it because it had this little slidey thing. That was part of the phones, I recall. It was kind of dumb because it was digital only. So. Yes, and nobody really had the infrastructure for that kind of system at the time. And there wasn't enough memory on the thing either. No. What did it come with? I can't remember if you remember. I don't remember at all. Nobody bought a PSP. <laughs> Nobody it a bought the failure. It kind of And the PSP cool. was dead by that time anyway, so it didn't really matter. That was the thing. By then, I think a lot of people had fallen out of love with the, the PSP in, in all its forms. I mean, it wasn't totally dead, but it was getting there. But yeah. anyway, so Persona 3 Portable, again, you want to talk about compromises between the PS2 version. One of the tough things about P3 Portable is that while it had a version where you could play as a girl, which is awesome. That's cool. And... Having the girl campaign is amazing. Um, that's the only way to play Persona 3 Portable in my mind. Uh, the fact that it just looks worse than the PS2 version and it only has the static maps. You can't actually explore the world, which right. is a huge bummer. You have to kind of go from point to point, which is a little more SMT than Persona. I mean, by and large, it's still a great game. It, if I were to suggest to somebody, like they said, Cat, which Persona should I play? I would be like, P3 Portable is the one to play. Oh, I haven't uh, played that yet, so maybe I should. Yeah, it's the best looking one. And if you wanted to, you can play it on Vita if you still own a Vita. Which I do, yeah. Like I said, that's where I play all my PS1 games on. There's also a really good emulation uh, for the PSP at this point. So you can play it on your PC or something like that. Yeah, you know, I never looked into PSP emulation, but that would be, it would have had a lot of time by now to kind of go through all the, the getting, sanding down all the rough points. The PSP was also notable because it marked the initial, the first time Persona 2 Innocent Sin was ever released in North America, Nadia. Now, here's the weird thing. So Persona 2 came out in North America, but it was actually Persona 2 Eternal Punishment, which was the second part of the duology. Innocent Sin never came out on PS1 in North America. But here in North America, Innocent Sin gets localized, but Eternal Punishment does not get localized. Oh, man. It's talking about going back to the old days when Final Fantasy 2 was Final Fantasy 4. Also, the thing with Eternal Punishment was, my understanding was that it was some kind of programming error. Like, they hit a technical issue... That made it literally impossible to be able to localize it. And that's why they <laughs> had to abandon the project. It happens. It does happen. Yeah, that's too bad. Because so Persona 1, Persona 2, much more kind of hardcore RPGs compared to Persona 3, Persona 4, I think. A lot less accessible, but still very meaty, excellent experiences that are worth experiencing if you're a big SMT fan, I think. Especially yeah. especially Persona 2. I think Innocent Sin is the, the best of them. Uh, definitely better than P1. Yeah, um, I'm surprised. Well, not very surprised at all. But when the Sony Classic came out, PlayStation Classic, they put freaking P1 on there. Mm-hmm. Because I guess because P5 was extremely popular by then. But man, talk about a, a gap of quality. <laughs> You're not doing yourself yeah, any favors there. Yeah, a little bit. Persona 1 does not hold up extremely well, in my opinion. Uh, Persona 2 maybe has a better story. Uh, something that was a little bit controversial about Innocent Sin is that they put a bunch of Shoji Meguro songs onto it. 
and people complained that the J-poppiness did not mesh well with the kind of grim and gritty atmosphere. And in the original Persona remake for the PSP, you could not turn that off. But on Persona <laughs> 2, you could switch back to the original soundtrack. So that was nice. That's good because uh, that is kind of a weird combination unless you're doing it ironically. I don't think they were. So that is the PlayStation Portable, a platform that does have a lot of history and has had a fairly large impact on especially Japanese role-playing games that came out at a time when uh, traditional consoles were not doing well in Japan. It provided a little bit of a safe haven for uh, traditional Japanese developers. Uh, Monster Hunter had a big impact on JRPGs. Uh, Falcom was able to get a foothold uh, thanks to the PSP and its early uh, embrace of Steam. We also had uh, the Persona games were definitely rising in popularity in a little, a little, I, I think that the PSP definitely helped in that regard. Uh, Square, some of Square's best RPGs, particularly Crisis Core, is on it. So mm-hmm. it has a healthy legacy. And I sold my PSP in like 2012 after getting a Vita, Nadia. But in a way, I kind of preferred my PSP over my Vita. Really? Um, the yeah. PSP was a, a really kind of interesting little bit of hardware it was kind of more bare bones than the Vita, though. I feel like the Vita has a lot of, like, animities that I enjoy. Like, I really like that touch screen. I think the Vita is a better piece of hardware. Yeah. For sure. And the fact that you could play a lot of different PS1 games and PSP games on it sort of makes it the definitive platform. But it felt like the Vita just was an anemic system from the very start and... Vita stands are going to get all over my case. We'll we'll explore <laughs> yeah. this a lot more when we talk about this about it for the console RPG quest. But I don't know. I just think the PSP was a much more round, well-rounded, healthy system that lasted a lot longer and was supported a lot longer. I am actually obligated to mention that it also has Final Fantasy IV Complete Collection, which is by far the best version of that game. Yeah, no. Final Fantasy IV Complete Collection, amazing version of Final Fantasy IV, beautiful sprites. Oh, yeah. That is the way to play that game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Square did the same thing with the original Final Fantasy, just kind of upgraded the sprites like mad, put it on the Vita. Uh, I think it also ended up on mobile too. But yeah, they did some good. They they did some good work, like I said, on the Vita with both sprites and polygons. I said, at its best, it gave us games like Crisis Core. At its worst, it was mostly a venue for shovelware and PS2 ports that suffered from very long load times and bad aspect ratios and all of that good stuff. And blur. Lots of blur. All right, Nadia, any final thoughts on the PSP and the legacy thereof? Uh, I think it was a it was a good little scrapper, and I got plenty of play out of mine. Eventually, I did transfer over to the Vita. I did not sell my old PSP. It's kind of languishing around somewhere. As for my very original, very first PSP, that RIP that ended up on a bus in Vermont, and God knows where it <laughs> went after that. I thought it was in Virginia. No, no, sorry, it was Vermont, because my brother's a a huge, huge snowboarder, and he was traveling to Vermont to snowboard, and he left my freaking PSP on the bus. So maybe he went snowboarding, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, um, it it wasn't, I didn't play it nearly as much as my DS, but I still, when I played it, I played it a lot, and I enjoyed it. So it's definitely not a failure, and I'm sorry I called it one. I put a lot of hours into that thing, for sure, If, if only because of Super Robot Wars. Yeah, see, I didn't have Super Robot Wars. When I went to the RPGs, I was usually playing, like, uh, my old PS1 RPGs, or I was playing Final Fantasy IV Complete Collection, or the original Final Fantasy, but yeah. 
And what would you say was the best RPG on the PSP? According to our top 25 RPG countdown list, that the answer to that question is Tactics Ogre. Did Tactics Ogre get ahead of Persona 4 Golden? Persona 4 Golden was a Vita game. Was it Vita? What the hell's yes, wrong with was. me? Okay, sorry, disqualified. You're right. It would probably be Tactics Ogre and maybe War of the Lions. Um, I would usually give it to Complete Collection because I'm a retro nerd. But uh, I could see some people selecting Crisis Core as well. I think that there is a not insignificant number of people who would pick Trails in the Sky. Yes, and unfortunately I never played that, so I can't say for myself. But if someone said to me Trails of the Sky is the best one, I'd say, sure, I understand your viewpoint. And Crisis Core didn't make our list, but I think it's one of the most notable and maybe the most beautiful game on the platform. Yes, it's very notable, especially now that it's so relevant to Final Fantasy VII Remake's story. And it has it has a lot of heart. It's, it, who The people who made it, like this team who made it, they obviously cared a whole lot about Zack. And Zack and Aerith in that game are d- disturbingly cute together. And on that note, that is our PSP console RPG quest. Do you have any memories of the PSP? Do you have any RPGs that you want to stand for that we didn't talk to about? Are you a big Hexus Force fan or Half Minute Hero fan? Well, you should send us a note. I, I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot. You can send me a DM or you can send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. Let's continue on to the track of the week. All right, it's time for the track of the week, the segment in which we review a classic track from RPG history and talk about its influence on the game because music is such an important part of the role-playing experience. Because we're doing the PSP RPG quest, it's only appropriate that we have a piece of music from the PSP. See if you recognize this song. Yes, this one was chosen by Nadia, and of course she picked a Final Fantasy song. It is from Final Fantasy Crisis Core. It is A Flower Blooming in the Slums, a really nice acoustic version of Eris' theme from Final Fantasy VII. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and the thing I wrote about it is basically it's a nice, gentle version of Eris' themes that's a little bit less grandiose than her theme in Final Fantasy VII, which of course plays at a very significant time in the story, a couple of very significant times in the story. It it kind of suggests that Aerith is like, you know, young and and full of dreams and in the prime of her life. Yeah, it's a really thoughtful use of acoustic guitars. And I was watching a video review. Apologies if I don't remember the exact reviewer. But they were pointing out how uh, the composer, uh, Takeharu Ishimoto, 
went for more of an acoustic theme because so much of the game takes place in like rural locations, more Western locations. Yes, it does. Yeah, it's uh, definitely like smaller towns. Zack and Cloud are from smaller towns, more like country. Tifa with her adorable cowboy hat. Uh, I love Tifa's cowboy hat. It's cute. Yeah, I think that's my favorite Tifa outfit, and I wish I could have her wear it the entire time, the entire game. It's not available in Remake, is it? No, I don't think it's available as a costume. It's between that and her dress from Mm -hmm. the slums. Mm -hmm. Yeah, In Dissidia, you could have her in her uh, cowboy outfit. But yes, uh, Crisis Core's soundtrack uh, leans on that kind of aspect quite a bit, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Um, it's if, if you listen to the soundtrack, and you should, because it's actually a really excellent soundtrack. It uses it's a lot slower, a lot more thoughtful than what you get for most RPGs. And this isn't the only song to use acoustic guitars. <laughs> I'll just say that there's even a I couldn't find it unfortunately, and I was trying. I was considering it. I was considering it alongside this song. There's a version that they play for occupied towns of um, Anxious Heart from Final Fantasy VII. That's it sounds a little more dire, but it is also a little more low key, a little slower. And that's that's a good way to describe the soundtrack for this game. Is it's low key, it's it's slower, it's very very moody, and I think it's really excellent. And finally, as we already mentioned, Crisis Core's soundtrack is composed by Takeharu Ishimoto, who apparently got into composing music because he lived in the country and there was nothing else to do. (laughs) Yes, and as someone who is a city girl through and through, I can appreciate that. I love nature. I love the countryside. But I when I live there, I go stir crazy. And he started at Square in 1999 as a synthesizer composer for Legend of Mana. Now, great game great soundtrack became a composer full composer shortly afterward helped compose many of the kingdom hearts games as well as the world ends with you he's good in other words (laughs) (laughs) yes and we've been over probably a couple of episodes by now about the world ends with you yeah we talked about the world ends with you in a different track of the week we did yes and that is another uh, series that really thrives on its soundtrack all right, Nadia, let's wrap up with a quick mailbag entry. This is one is from Bishia Ted. Last week we talked about Moon, told the story of Moon. Bishia Ted says, first things first, got to shout out Tim Rogers for the translation of Moon. Fans of his work can definitely see traces of him all over the script, and I would call that a good thing. Moon is definitely a fascinating game that feels right in places with the modern indie RPG scene, despite being made around 20 years ago. The kind of thing that makes me wonder what other possibilities were missed just because creators at the time weren't able to have the accessibility that modern games allow. And somebody else was pointing out that, hey, guys, uh, self-awareness, genre self-awareness did not start with Nier. Japanese developers were doing that way the heck before with Moon in 1997. Yeah, I actually, a friend of mine, I told her to play Untrail, and she hated it really, really badly. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's weird yeah well she does not play japanese rpgs and to her she plays like a lot of western rpgs and she said they were doing uh-huh. the whole self-awareness thing long long before uh undertale did and i don't know how that stacks up to like you know japanese history in terms of breaking the fourth wall or not but she didn't think it was very clever in other words well she's wrong i i agree undertale is <laughs> still a fantastic game <laughs> all right that is all the time we have for this week's episode of acts of blood god if you enjoy the show, can I suggest that you go and leave a positive review over on iTunes or Stitch or wherever, the podcatcher of your choice. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. You can follow Nadia at Nadia Oxford. 
I am on Twitch at TV. She is on Twitch at ActungKitten. And of course, there's a newsletter which comes out every single Wednesday, which you should subscribe to. We'll be back next week again, as always, for more great RPG conversation. Thanks for listening and for nodding myself. Until next week, happy adventuring. Thank you.